So let's start with our notes today. Uh, we're going to start with the idea of the book, book of Revelation is not. I know when I, when I say we're going to do the book of Revelation, some people cringe, some people get excited, some people yawn. There's all kinds of reactions to it. I, I, Dennis prayed earlier that uh, we can get it because it's a hard book to understand. And that's true, and it's not true. It, it all depends on how we approach it. So first thing I want to say is the book of Revelation is not scary. We think it's scary. It's a book some people avoid. I, I've heard of pastors that wouldn't teach from the book of Revelation because it's it's hard to understand. It's this, that, and the other. People get scared. People get nervous. They think it's things. They think it says things that it doesn't, and they think it doesn't say things that it does. So it's not scary. Be in your notes. It's not too hard to understand. We, we've heard that, and, and sometimes it can be difficult, but it, it was written to be understood. The people of the day, the people who lived in the seven churches in Asia, were normal, everyday people, and they received the letter, and it was expected that they would understand it. So it was written, in a way, for the ordinary person attending a church in Asia. And, and we can transfer that to us. It was written for us. We're just ordinary, everyday people. We haven't changed all that much over the years. Our technology has changed. Our modes of transportation have changed. But people are people. It's, it's a different language even, but we can grasp this, and we will do that. So it's not, it's not too hard to understand. It's not God's final judgment on sinful mankind. That's, a, that's an assumption people make, and I, and I want to start off by saying that is an incorrect assumption. Punishment for, for sinful mankind, or judgment for sinful mankind, indeed God's punishment for the sin of mankind, that takes place in hell. The judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat, the great white throne, whatever you want to call it, when we stand before God and he opens the books, our name is either in the book of life, which means everything's been erased from the other book, and if our name's in the book of life, we enter into our reward, we enter into heaven. If our name's not in the book of life, then we read all our deeds while living on this earth in the other book, and then our, we're judged on our deeds. And if your name's still in that book, your, your sins are recorded. And then Jesus says, depart from me, I don't know you, because your sins have not been forgiven. That's the final judgment. That's when sin is paid for. Some of it was paid for by Jesus on the cross. Other sin will be paid for by the individual who committed it in the lake of fire. So this is not final judgment. It's, it's not God getting even. It's not God selling the score. It's not God losing his temper. It, it's not God saying, I've had enough. I'm done with you people. N none of that's true. We're going to have a, a completely different perspective when we're done. So let's go to the other side. It, it's not, the book of Revelation is not these things. Rather, it is, A, in your notes, enlightening. It's enlightening. God revealed these things to us so that we could consider them, so we could ponder them, so we could think about things of the future. The last bit of prophecy yet to be fulfilled, most of it is found in Revelation. And he wants us to know about it. He wants us to understand it. He wants us to think about it. 
He wants us to ask the question, what does this mean to me? How is this supposed to change my thinking? B, it is understandable when read as written. We, we don't have to do fancy things with it. We read it as written. If it's written in symbolic language, we read it as symbolism. If it's written as historical language, we read it as history. Literal language, we read it as literal. Read it as it's written, and it makes a lot of sense. It is C, God's personal evangelistic campaign, and D, God's warning against final judgment. So what God is doing in the tribulation, which is a lot of the book, and what he's warning us will happen, he's saying, listen, there's going to come a time when time is short. I will declare the time is short. Seven years is what I'm going to give you. There will be seven years. It's called the Great Tribulation. During those seven years, that's your last chance to choose to follow me. I'm going to show you miracles. I'm going to show you great and wondrous things. I'm going to show you things that haven't been seen since the plagues of Egypt. I'm going to show you things that are unexplainable. Yes, there will be opposition. There will be someone else preaching a false gospel. But I will show you the truth. And, and this is the time. Your time is limited. And anyone who studied the Bible or read Revelation or heard of the tribulation period, anyone who's still here could recognize that. And they should say, wow, I better get my life right now because time is short. And it's God calling people to respond. It's evangelism. We're going to read some very specific things and, and we'll read some, some broader things, but it's evangelism. And it's God doing the evangelism. And it's his warning that time is short. Right now, the warning is at any time this period could begin. At any time the rapture could take place. And that's what signals the tribulation. When the rapture takes place, the tribulation begins. And, and, then, and then we'll have a timeline. Right now we'll have no timeline. The rapture could be right now before I finish the sentence. It could be tomorrow. It could be a hundred years from now. It could be a thousand years from now. Us, like many generations before us, can't fathom it getting much worse before Christ comes back, but we don't know the mind of Christ in that matter. So it could happen any time. And, and that's how we're going to read the book of Revelation. What does God want us to know? What are we supposed to learn? How is he showing us his character? How is he showing us his love? So let's go to background and context to the book itself. So A in your notes, it was written by the Apostle John. It was written by the Apostle John. All of our books in the New Testament were written by someone who had apostolic authority. Either, either written, uh, written as told by an apostle or written by an apostle. That's important. Written by the Apostle John. It was written after Emperor Domitian failed to kill John in a cauldron of boiling oil. Now that part's not in the Bible. That's in history. And no one refutes it. So I'm, I'm going to say it's probably correct. Domitian was the emperor after Nero. Nero was more famous for his persecution, but Domitian was more effective in his persecution. Nero got the ball rolling. Domitian perfected it. Domitian thought he was God and wanted everyone else to think he was God. And if you were willing to say, no, you're not God, I worship the true God, Domitian was more than happy to silence you. And so John, running around talking about Jesus, 
was not something Domitian was in favor of. And in order to silence him and make a point and set an example, he had a cauldron of boiling oil. He dropped him in. Don't know exactly how all this works, but he didn't die. Well, what do you do with a guy you don't want preaching, but you can't kill? You get rid of him. You send him away. So he sent them the rest of your notes and then exiled to the island of Patmos. So it's written by the Apostle John after Emperor Domitian failed to kill John in a cauldron of boiling oil and was then exiled to the island of Patmos. The island of Patmos, you can Google it. They know where it is. You can see pictures of it. It's just a big, rocky, nasty place. It, it's not Gilligan's Island. Okay, it's, it's, a, it's a nasty place. There's just a few beaches where you can survive. There's not really any food source. There's not, not a lot of fresh water anywhere. It literally is a place you sent people to die. So if someone was going to survive on Patmos, other people had to provide for them. So the fact that John lived on Patmos and may have even gotten off of it at some point, the fact that he survived there meant that other people were bringing him food, bringing him water, bringing him supplies. The paper he wrote on, the pen he wrote with, had to be supplied by somebody. It's probably also how his writings got brought back to the people. So all that, all that is going on, and, and I really want you to notice this and understand this, because God intervened to save John so that John could write Revelation. God had a desire for Revelation to be written. John was his guy. He was the last apostle living. And, and, and so God did these things so he could write it. It's believed to have written between 81 and 96 A.D., which puts John at about 90 years old. So 90-year-old John's running around. He's such a thorn in the flesh of Domitian that he tries to kill him. When that doesn't work, he exiles him. That John, picture whatever you think that John looked like, that John writes the book of Revelation at about 90 years old. And like I said, he was the, the last living apostle. It outlived Peter by several years. He was the last one. This would be the last book written, the last book to fill out our New Testament. So B in your notes, the book of Revelation was delivered to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And eventually to all the churches by those who cared for John's needs while in exile. The very people that supplied the paper also delivered the letters. There were seven churches. They were all near each other in a, in a portion of Asia. And, and there was a road, a Roman road that was built that connected them all. And, and that's how these churches got together. And that's how the, the letters were delivered. See, Revelation contains both literal times dates, places, timelines, and descriptions. So it talks about literal things, things you can hear, see, and touch. All right? As well as metaphorical imagery. Sometimes it's mixed. That's where the difficulty comes. Sometimes we're going to read about a, a mixture of, of literal things and, and metaphorical things and imagery, and we have to be able to decipher the two. So sometimes it's very clear which is which. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's very clear what's liter literal, what's metaphorical, and sometimes it's not. When it is clear, we read it. Clearly is written. 
When it's not, we hold our findings loosely. That's important. We hold our findings loosely. If you read something in Revelation and, and, and you're just not sure what it means, and you listen to three or four people explain what they think it means and they don't agree, that's not a hole you want to die on. Prophecy is usually understood in retrospect. Prophecy is rarely understood completely looking forward. We see what we see, we're told what we're told, but the context is not usually clear. So we can look back and say, that's what that meant, that's why that happened, that's where we were going there. But to look forward about things that aren't clearly stated puts us in a precarious situation. Because we'll say something, and we'll we'll say it dogmatically, and then later something will come up and we'll go, oh, well, that can't be right. Oops. So we hold those things loosely. D in your notes, Revelation contains direct and specific messages for the original readers, the seven churches, and their contemporaries living in the day. There's at least 60 churches that existed at the time of the writing, probably many more, but 60 churches that, that they can name, they know where they were, they know what city they were in, they know they existed, archaeology, history, all that's proven it true. There's at least 60 churches, but God chose seven of them. The seven churches in Asia Minor. And so we have to read it as it was written to them. Then we read it as all the other churches would write it, because it was passed around to all the churches. And we read it as we would read it. It contains direct and specific messages to all readers over all time to come. That includes us. And then E, it is best understood when we read it as written, And don't try to add to the text or take away from the text to address an issue not being addressed. For example, who is the Antichrist? A lot of people stop partway through the Antichrist is mentioned. They spend six weeks identifying potential Antichrists. I literally remember going to high school retreat at Jansen Beach and hearing Dawson McAllister spend four hours explaining to us that Prince Charles was the Antichrist. Maybe he was. But Jesus didn't return. So now he's retired out of that. And someone else, I have no idea. But what I left with was, who cares? What difference did it make? That was a complete waste of my time. So we don't need to spend time trying to decipher things we're not told. Where is the United States in end times? Where is the United States? We have Gog and Magog. We have the the countries from the east and the west and the south. And where is the United States? Well, if we're not told, guess what? doesn't matter. We're in there somewhere. We're either doing the right thing or the wrong thing. And I'm going to guess we're going to be on the wrong side. Okay, just by the way things are going. Not important. Definitely not in in the book of Revelation. We might ask the question, when will Christ return? Well, that's a futile question because the Bible says nobody knows. Nobody knows the time or the hour. Nobody knows the day. As soon as you guess a date, now it's not that date. So if you don't want Christ to return, get all your friends together and start guessing all the dates, I guess. I don't know if that would work or not. But it's, it's kind of futile to be thinking about those things, and we do that a lot. So when we study the book, we're going to stick to what the book actually says. And so let's go to the book, and let's read what it says. We're in Revelation chapter 1. Let's read Revelation chapter 1. 
It says, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending an angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the people on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and, king, and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was, was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his, hand held, in his hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen. Write it now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels and the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So that's Revelation chapter 1. We saw some stuff. Oh, yeah, I understand that. And you probably heard some stuff and went, okay, that's weird. Well, we might as well get started, right? Look at your notes. Revelation 1, 1 to 3. This is what I want you to take from that. A, John's writings have an irrefutable pedigree. An irrefutable pedigree. That means there's no question. You can't doubt it. You can't call him out and say you don't know what you're talking about. He explains where this stuff came from. It, it originates with God. God gave the message to Jesus. Jesus sent the message to John through angels, and John wrote it down for us. 
So we have our message that we can trace all the way back to the Trinitarian God, the God of creation, God Almighty, God All-Powerful. And so what John is telling us is, what I'm going to write right now, this is from God Almighty. This is not something I thought of, not something I'm making up, not something I can, I'm confused about. This came from God Almighty himself. It was brought to me by Jesus through an angel, and I've written it down. So the pedigree is there. The result, this letter should bring us joy and excitement. Verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, who, who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed means happy. Blessed means better off than you were. Blessed means in a good place. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because time is near. We don't just hear it, but we consider it and we believe it and we act on it. So as we hear the book of Revelation, which is from God Almighty, it should cause us to be in a better place than we were before. We should say, wow, this is interesting. This is important. This is, this is something I need to ponder. And it should bring me joy because I'm getting to know God better. I'm being told the secrets of the future. And I'm getting to see what I have to look forward to. Verse 4 through 8. I'll let you read that. We won't read it again. Let's look at the notes. Talking about the seven churches in the province of Asia. Number one, the seven churches were probably or possibly churches that were all pastored by John. Now we know at least one, maybe two of them were started by Paul, but Paul is dead now. Paul is, is, is long gone. John is the last one left. And there's a really good chance that these letters go to these churches because he's pastoring these churches. They're all on one Roman road, and he could easily travel from church to church to church to church, get to the end, turn around and come back, get to the end, turn around and go back, and he could oversee and be the pastor of all seven churches. It's about 50-50 on whether that's accurate or not. I happen to be one of the 50 that thinks that is accurate. So from now on, we're just going to assume it is. John was a pastor of these churches. What that means is that they respected him, they knew him, he exercised authority over them, and when he sent them a letter and he said, this is what God Almighty has spoken to me through Jesus and an angel, they would receive that just as it was written. And that's, that's why it went to those churches. Number two, these churches were definitely all churches sharing a single Roman trade route. In other words, they were in relationship with each other. Number three, they're identified as churches who represent both holy and unholy church practices. So John writes these letters. They're dictated to him by Jesus. And Jesus identifies the good, the bad, and the ugly. He says, I commend you for this. I hold this against you, and I'm going to punish you for this. We get the whole spectrum. He doesn't pull punches. He doesn't whitewash the whole thing. We get all of it. And that's important because number four, these seven churches symbolize the state of the Christian church as a whole. Symbolize. There's seven for a reason. There's seven for a reason. Seven is the, the number of completion. You might call it the number of God. It comes up a lot in the book of Revelation. There's seven seals, 
There's seven bowls. There's seven trumpets. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. We'll get there. There's seven years of tribulation, and there's seven churches. And so these seven churches, numbered to completion, represent all of the churches. In other words, everything they're dealing with is pretty much the same stuff we're going to deal with. We're going to have the same issues. We're going to be doing the same things right. We will be commended for the right things we do. The issues need to be addressed. So we read the letters to the seven churches, and we don't say, Whoa, those people in Thyatira, boy, are they messed up. Or those people in Ephesus, I hope they got their act together. We read the letters, and we ask, Is this a letter that could be written to us? Have we lost our first love? Are we listening to false teachers? Have we disregarded the gospel? We ask, is it written to us? Are we doing the good things? Are we doing the bad things? And then we evaluate and we respond. If, if we're guilty of the things that they're guilty of, then we repent. If we're doing the right things, we acknowledge that and we continue doing them. We don't pat ourselves on the back and go, well, at least we're better than that church. Right? We learn and we grow because of what's written. But the symbolism is that, that all, the, all the churches, this is, this is how we evaluate our churches. Every, everything we need to know is here. This is what God wants from the churches. This is what he says to all the churches of all time. And so when we study them, that's the approach we'll take. B, this book was written to glorify God. To glorify God. I want to point out something that I just think is really interesting in verse 4. I'll start where it says, Grace and peace to you from, this is now the important part, him who is and who was and who is to come. Okay? That's God the Father. That's God the Father. Then it says, And from the seven spirits before the throne, and my Bible has a little A there. Your, yours might be notated differently, but it refers to me down to the notes. And it says, that is the sevenfold spirit. And you study that out a little bit. And the, and the Holy Spirit has seven names, or seven titles, or seven things he does. And so sevenfold spirit would be the best way to say it. If your Bible has that, be happy. If not, God will circle around the footnotes so you remember that. But the sevenfold spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. So we have God the Father, we have the Holy Spirit, and verse 5 says, and from Jesus Christ, that's the Son, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, and then goes on and on and talks about the Son all the way to verse 8. Then in verse 8, God the Father speaks, or, or the God, the Trinitarian God, the complete God, says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. So, so we have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the entirety of God. And the, the, the book is to glorify Him. So we should read the book to learn about God. And what we learn about God will, will glorify Him. See in your notes, Revelation may be written by John, but it is truly from God. First person, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and is and is to come. God is in control of this. The entire, the entire Trinity is involved in it. Revelation 1, 9 through 20, we read that. It, it takes too long to reread it. And this is where a lot of those phrases are that you went, huh, what, who, what? And so 
I want to spend some time on those. I picked, I picked some. They're in your notes. And I, and I want to show you the symbolism here. There's, there's a literal vision. So in other words, John is seeing a literal vision. There's not really pillars and candlesticks and all this, but he sees them. So it's a literal vision with symbolism in it. So we know that this represents the churches and that, but let us focus on God. We're going to focus on Jesus. So, so John hears a voice. He turns around. He sees this vision. He sees the Son of Man, which is a word for God, the word for Jesus in particular. He sees Jesus standing there, and now he describes him. Now remember, John was one of Jesus' best friends. He was in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. They did the most with Jesus. They saw the most and heard the most. So John, of the Peter, James, and John, has not seen Jesus for 50 to 60 years. Has not seen his very good friend, maybe his best friend, for 50 or 60 years. He turns around, and there he is. He recognizes him, but he looks different than he's ever looked before. And now we have the description. So how does John look at his friend Jesus. I'm going to pull some quotes right out of that part of this passage, and we're going to identify what they mean. So he said, His robe reached down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. That would have said to anybody standing there, any Jewish person within a, within a mile of this statement would have said, High priest. So Jesus is the high priest. Now, the usual high priest, what made him special, well, he was the only person who got to go where God was in the Holy of Holies. So God dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Once a year, the high priest got to go in as part of the sacrificial system, and he had to be absolutely sure he was pure and, and had confessed all his sins, because if he went in there with an unconfessed sin, he would die. And so it was, it was very holy, it was, it was very maintained, and now we have Jesus being the high priest. And Jesus isn't going into the Holy of Holies. Jesus is now interacting with God on our behalf. So the earthly high priest represented the people before God. This high priest really represents God to the people. So Jesus is now the high priest. He is in control of the sacrificial system. He was the sacrifice. So he's the high priest. He has the most authority. He's in charge. B... It said, his hair on his head was like wool, and then it says it's like white as snow. That symbolizes wisdom, the wisdom of the ages, or the wisdom of the aged. We see people with white hair, we, we recognize, oh, they're probably older than me, those of us who still have hair, sorry, Jason. But, and we say, wow, you've been around a while, share some wisdom with me. You've been doing this for a decade, share with me, I've been doing it for a week. And, and so the symbolism is the wisdom of the ages. So we have the high priest. Now we have wisdom. See, it says his eyes were like blazing fire. This is discernment. You ever, you ever heard someone say, they looked right through me? Their eyes, they just looked right through me? We say to our kids sometimes, we say to a friend, I can read you like a book. This is the eyes of discernment. So Jesus has perfect discernment and perfect judgment. D, we have the phrase, his feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace. They, they refined with fire. So we're talking about refinement and, and purity. 
So Jesus was tested in the fire, and he came out pure. He came out holy. And, and so this symbolizes his purity and his holiness. But he's been tested, and it's true. E says his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And this is both powerful and calming. If you, if you go on a hike and, and you go down to a waterfall and, and you hear the water coming off the falls and crashing to the ground, or you're, you're near a river where there's rapids taking place, the closer you get to the rapids or the closer you get to the waterfall, the more you realize there's a little danger here. If I fall in and go down the rapids, it could be the end for me. If I mess around with the waterfall, I could go crashing into the water below. And, and, and so it's, it's dangerous. It's powerful. Well, God is powerful. We should see God as powerful. But it's also calming. If you lay down in the grass next to the stream or the river, you're not in danger of falling in, but you can hear it. Very calming. Hearing the waterfall as it just continually hits the water down below, hits the rocks down below. Very calming, very soothing. So Jesus' voice both exudes power and calmness at the same time. F says, out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. This one always throws me for a little bit. Because everything else sounded really literal. Like, I could, I could see Jesus being there with his eyes red and his feet glowing and his hair white and his face glowing. I could see all that. I can picture that. I don't know where to put the sword coming out of his mouth. Long sword, short sword, in his teeth. What do you do with this sword? All of a sudden, we're in a situation where is it literal or is it figurative? Is it figuratively literal or is it literally figurative? Can't even say the words. What do you do with that? Well, I don't know. But I can tell you it's one of two things. It's either literal or it's figurative. If it's literal, then John's looking at Jesus and he has a sword coming out of his mouth. And if he sees a sword coming out of his mouth, that means something. And we need to know what that means. If it's figurative, he hears the words coming out of his mouth, and he says they're powerful like a sharp double-edged sword. Earlier, it says the Word of God in Timothy, the Word of God is like a double-edged sword. The Word of God, the Bible, is like a double-edged sword. It's powerful, and it gets to places where other words don't get. It, it has a way of, of getting deep inside and, and getting to the issue. And so if John turns around... And, he, and the words of Jesus are so powerful, he might just say it's like a sword coming out of his mouth. Now, if I get to heaven, and I get to see this picture, a replay, or, or a photo, or a video, I get to see this happen, and I see John turn around, and there's Jesus with a little sword coming out of his mouth, I'm going to go, man, that's cool. How does he talk? And if I get to heaven, and he turns around, and he's just speaking, and I hear the words, then I'm going to respond like John and say, that is powerful, like a double-edged sword. Either way it works. Jesus' words are powerful, and they have authority. Jesus said his face was like the sun. Well, we didn't get a good look at the sun this morning on our way in, but we did last week. Some of you went and stood in the sun or laid in the sun. You soaked in the sun because you needed it. 
The sun is brilliant. It's life-giving. It's energizing. It's radiant. Well, Jesus' face is brilliant. You look into it, and it's just brilliant. It's life-giving. It's energizing. And it's radiant. That's what's being communicated here. Other things, we're not going to look at the quotes, but other things that are talked about, we, we hear about his resurrection, how he was dead but is now alive, how he's eternal, how he's in control, how he's the Messiah from the Old Testament, and how he's God. We read all this stuff. And it's, it's not so much, I mean, understanding each little point is important. We shouldn't skip by it. But the whole is really what we're supposed to notice. John could have said, I turned around and I saw Jesus. That was cool. Here's what he said. And to the church of Ephesus, write this. He could have skipped by it really quickly, but he didn't. Because when John turned around and he saw Jesus, he was in awe. There was a little bit of shock, a little bit of awe, a little bit of, wow, what's this? My friend that I haven't seen in 50 plus years is standing before me, and he looks more like God now than he ever has before. Remember, John was at the transfiguration, so he could literally say that. And he stopped and he said, I have to describe every single detail showing who Jesus is, how he's God, how he's in control, how whatever he's going to say next is really, really important. And that's how John describes it. He takes most of the chapter here describing what Jesus looks like. And he didn't have to explain the symbolism because they all got it first off. They, they immediately understood what was being said. And so we have this great description of Jesus. So John's response was, was to declare this as worship. He worshipped him by declaring all this. He listened to what he had to say. He believed him, and then he followed Jesus as God. He did what was said. He went willingly. He followed through on the process, even though it was probably a little bit scary. And he wrote down what he was supposed to write down. We should respond in the same way. Perhaps experience some shock and awe as well. I have not been able to put this vision together in one unit. My mind doesn't work that way. Maybe there's an artist among us that can draw us a picture. <laughs> Sometimes I look online to see what other artists draw and try to draw this, and it's never quite enough. I can't see it in my mind because it, it's, it's too much. So piece by piece, I also look at Jesus. And I say, well, he is God. He resurrected, which reminds me that he died. He is eternal. He was the creator. I, I find that he's powerful and calming. Like I can rest in his arms. I can rest assured. He's, he's pure. He was tested and he came out pure. He knows everything. I can't hide anything from him. He has all the wisdom that exists, and he is the high priest that stands between me and the Father. He is my ticket. He is my provision. He is the sacrifice that was made on my behalf. And I should just really just step back and go, wow, incredible. God the Son standing there with all this stuff on display. And, of course, John got to say, 
and he wants me to write his letter. What an honor. And whatever he asks us to do, we can say, and he wants me to do this. You guys may never believe me when I say this, and I have no way to prove it to you, and you have no way to test it. But at least once a month, if not once a week, I sit in the back and I pray before service, and I say, God, thank you for letting me be the pastor. Because in my mind, I know that I don't deserve it, I'm not smart enough, and other people could do a better job. But for whatever reason, this Jesus stood in front of me and said, I want you to be the pastor. And my response has to be, then by all means, I'll be the pastor. And whatever God's called you to do, your response should be the same because you don't deserve any of it. None of us deserve any of it. None of us deserve to stand in the place of God to do his work. None of us deserve to speak for God or represent God. But he has chosen to make you his ambassadors. To let you be a light that shines on a hill. To be the salt of the earth. He has chosen to let you be the church that represents him to the world. And our response should be, wow, I can't believe I get to do this. I'm in. That's was John's response. That should be our response. And we're going we're gonna to follow John all the way through this. For now, let's pray. Father God, thank you for giving us this book, which can seem scary, but really doesn't have to be. It can seem overwhelming, but we're going to tackle it. Thank you for, for saving John so he could write it. Thank you for the example he set in, in just his awe of you. Thank you that we got to look at this picture as well. May our response be the same. Father, whatever you ask us to do this week, wherever you ask us to go, whoever you ask us to talk to, whatever you ask us to give away, whatever you ask us to do, may we respond like John and just say, wow, I can't believe I get to do this. Absolutely, I will do it. May that be the cry of our heart. May that be the response. May our actions follow. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.